Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Primal Endurance Podcast with Yanit Yaxon. Sitting over here, staring in your face with lust in my eyes. Sure, don't give a damn, and you don't know that I've been dreaming of you in my fantasies. Never once you looked at me, don't even realize that I'm wanting you to come in my knees. Think what you want, let your mind free. Run to a place that no one dares to. How many nights I've laid in bed excited over you? Please don't read the lyrics of this song as it continues. What's cool was, when it came out, you couldn't understand the lyrics. So it played all over the radio in the sold-out concert halls on her tour, and Casey Kasem was ranking it number one again. And then, here we are, what, 15 years later, 20 years later, you can go search the lyrics of any song, and they get a little spicy. So don't say I didn't warn you, and I'm sure you can't hear anything nasty, so I'll stay free from occasional criticisms that I receive on the show. Not for my rapping skills, haven't had any of those yet, but sometimes some offensive lyrics creeping in uh, without my full attention, so... Great apologies for that. We're a fun, clean show here, and we're focused on endurance training after wasting the first minute on a rapping intro. Okay, I am getting some very interesting email communications these days, kind of a blend of straight-up questions with success stories and interesting accounts of the primal endurance approach effectiveness in place. Also, some great comments I have to appreciate Uh, people taking the course, digging in deep, looking at the video series. They've been so wonderfully categorized and organized so you can have sort of bite-size educational experiences at your uh, wish and command, whatever you feel like listening to or watching. We have the whole uh, eating recipe section. We have the categorized interviews with all the experts. So if you want to scroll down to the S's and sit with Kelly Starrett, at his facility in San Francisco CrossFit and hear him relate some epic quotes that might change your entire perspective of endurance training. Uh, My favorite was when he said, most endurance athletes only care about time. As if you were commuting to work and said, hey, I set a record today, my fastest commute ever. Of course, I hit 17 parked cars and ran a couple red lights, but hey, I got to work faster. He, He drew that analogy, funny shit because he's a funny guy, but it has tremendous relevance to the mindset that we apply to endurance training when we apply an overly narrow approach. So please go take a look at the landing page, primalendurance.fit. I'm offering you a fabulous, incredible 20% discount on the course enrollment. I can virtually guarantee that you will have a life-changing experience and a lifetime of content to pull from archived there at the portal when you log in. So it is time to sign up for this course, man. We work so hard on this. It's so well organized and categorized, and I'm really touched by the the people writing in with specific uh, praise and comments about how stuff has helped them. And I know that Kelly Starrett stuff, I just thought of that today, that's um, really a, a re-educating and a way to change your perspective. That's not all about time. It's about doing it right, doing it with good form, 
preventing injury. Remember those insights that I've talked about on the show that come from Dr. Phil Maffetone and my fantastic series of interviews with him at his home in the Arizona desert, where he said that setting PRs can be foretelling of impending breakdown, burnout, illness, injury. Because when you get in that overstressed state, what do they call it? The hyper-adaptive state, or there's some other word for it, sorry. But when you're buzzed on adrenaline from training so hard and putting in so many great workouts, and then you step on the starting line for the race and you throw down and have a good result, and then you get further encouraged and want to go home and train harder, that is a very common and predictive pattern of demise because our body responds to stress by overproducing the peak uh, performance hormones like cortisol that we hear about a lot, uh, a central component of the fight-or-flight response. So when we overstress ourselves, when we overload ourselves, we respond with a hormonal response that allows us to uh, carry on and even feel great. Go to bed after a hard day of training, wake up the next day and feel great because we're bathed in a cocktail of stress hormones that are helping you fight for your life with this, uh, these, these stressors such as asking yourself to perform on yet another 50-mile bike ride or yet another tempo run with the group on Tuesday night. But what happens is over time, your body gets tired of the unrelenting stress if you don't rest and recover properly. And then you start underproducing normal levels, important critical levels of these prominent stress hormones like cortisol, which regulates energy production and assorted hormonal functions in the body. Aldosterone is another key stress hormone that when you start underproducing, you start to experience aches and pains in the joints, such as the lower back and the knee. Uh, Oh my gosh, I mean, this stuff was um, my life for so many years when I was competing on the pro circuit. I was constantly battling these crash and burn patterns these burnout patterns where I'd have a great few months on the circuit and put up some wins and some third places and be traveling around and spending a week training my ass off in the steamy hot weather of the Caribbean and then getting on another plane and going to another race and performing well. And then I'd come home and be on the couch for four weeks straight, barely able to get up and go train. It was because I was engaged in these hyperstimulation, overstress patterns. My body responded to a certain extent, and then I would fall apart, oftentimes without warning. And you can go uh, search for my shows on the Primal Blueprint channel with Debbie Potts, where you can see the wonderful series of interviews that, again, may just change your life when you hear the emphatic message that Debbie has to say about her Uh, incredible journey uh, from burnout and fighting back for her health and living a balanced life and pursuing, uh, promoting her whole athlete approach that came from a tremendous run, more than most of us could ever imagine. Uh, I believe she did like uh, 12 Ironmans in eight years. She went to Hawaii six times. So at the top in the world in her age division. And then one day uh, during a routine 50 mile ride, she pulled over to the curb and just fell apart. She couldn't continue, and she plunged into a uh, a tailspin of an assortment of health problems and functional medicine problems that kind of inspired her to um, pursue a career in coaching functional medicine and helping athletes recover from overstress pat overstress patterns and do things the right way to avoid her 
um, her, her fate that kept her from uh, the race course for several years now. Yeah, this is serious stuff. I mean, it's worth the price of admission to just sit with Debbie in her house and hear her detail her journey so that you can learn things and not uh, fall into those same patterns that happen to so many endurance athletes. It's a quiet, suffering story here because we don't read in the magazines about people that uh, crash and burn. We read about the people that win podium spots and excitedly detail their weekly training routine. Do they still have that in the magazines? I'm not a huge uh, vociferous consumer of every uh, media production of endurance training, but in the old days, uh, they would pick a professional athlete to feature in Triathlete Magazine, and they'd always detail the person's weekly training pattern. Monday, swim 5,000 with assorted drills and strokes and intervals. Bike 52 miles, run easy six miles. Tuesday, bike 120 miles. And you'd put these training schedules up every single month and read the amazing amount of work these pros were doing. And it was such a high bullshit factor that it was almost a joke. I mean, if someone's going to ask you uh, to be a featured athlete in a magazine and then ask you what's your typical training week like, what are you going to give them? An average week or are you going to give them a dream week that maybe you did once or even embellish the crap out of anything you ever do just so you look good in the magazine? Oh my gosh, enough of that. Stick a finger down my throat. Anyway, um, a couple cool notes. One of them from Jason True. He says, my current math pace is 10 minutes a mile. For the sake of variety, parentheses, sanity, question mark, I run 30 seconds faster, a 930 mile pace, for about two minutes, and then I walk for 30 seconds, and I repeat. So instead of just plugging along at 10 minute mile, he goes for 930 for two minutes right about when that heart rate's going to beep, going to exceed his 180 minus age, he gets that walking experience in and takes the heart rate down. What a very interesting approach. He asks, is this cheating? In other words, due to the lag in heart rate, is this still in accordance with primal endurance? Yes, it is. That's a super cool idea to mix it up a little bit, man. So go ahead, run for two minutes at a pace that would probably initiate a beeping of the watch and of course would keep that beeping going once you hit beep zone it's not going to go away just because you keep running at that pace right so if you're a 10 minute math person and you want to run two minute stints at 9 30 and then walk and get that heart rate down 10 12 15 beats whatever happens in 30 seconds of walking and then build back up that's a really interesting way to mix up your training improve your sanity improve your variety and pursuant to this i know phil maffetone talks about in his books this concept of downhill running so that you can still protect your uh, your stress level the hormonal effects of the workout the metabolic effects of the workout so you're still burning fat but if you run downhill you can get into uh, increased turnover and prepare yourself for a race effort at a faster pace uh, without the stress. So downhill running as a component of math training, very interesting, and the same kind of aspect that Jason is on. Oh, James Hall writes me an email and says, hey, I noticed your dad's awesome golf swing at the age of 96 on your Instagram post. So yes, a little plug for Brad Kern's one on Instagram. I try to put up cool, interesting stuff, some of it related to food, some of it related to awesome 96-year-old golfers who's still going out in the backyard at my encouragement and hitting shots over the pool. Uh, but WalterKearns.com 
has had an amazing run in the sport of golf, and I think you'll enjoy reading his website. His accolades, his accomplishments are pretty awesome, and especially the idea of leading a long, healthy life where he's been very interested in balance, in keeping physically fit, in eating healthy, and to uh, to good result. Great guy. Great to see him out there still. Uh, precious times, even though we're not playing 18 holes anymore. We get out there in the backyard and go take a look on Instagram, take a look on his website. He's had 11 hole-in-ones in his life, uh, six of them, I believe, after turning age 80. And he shot his age uh, something like 1,500 times over his life, starting at age 67 when he shot a 66. For those of you not uh, attuned to golf, that's four under par, an absolutely stunning round for an old guy, 67, seemingly old for a golfer, but here he is breaking par and continuing all the way to uh, his record under par score of 71 at the age of 86, 87, 16 under his age. Oh boy. Anyway, thanks James. And he says, getting back to the endurance topic, but well, isn't that on the endurance topic of a guy living a healthy, balanced life for 96 years? I think so. Anyway, so James says, um, my math pace was 14 minutes a mile when I first started training back in January 2015. Now I'm moving at a pace that is 52 beats per minute below my maximum aerobic heart rate. So that 14-minute mile that he was plugging along at, frustratingly so, I'm sure, when he started math training back in January 2015, he can now hold a 14-minute mile at 50 beats below math. Huh. So those of you impatient, wondering if this stuff works, how about that? This is a real person, man. I'm not making up the name James Hall. How can I make up a name like that? Uh, you got to be patient. What the heck have you been doing with your training since January 2015? And how much have you improved or perhaps even regressed, especially as we get older? We're not getting any younger. None of us on the show, right? But what an amazing accomplishment to hold the same pace at 52 beats below math. And back to James's letter, those three and a half years have not been a neat line of progress, but it's been a good journey nonetheless. Important point to make there, that you're not going to go drop 20 seconds off your math time every nine weeks or any of that nonsense. Sometimes improvement comes in fits and spurts, and sometimes, I shouldn't say sometimes, very frequently, improvement comes on the heels of rest and recovery periods where you reduce your normal training volume and experience a performance breakthrough. Should I repeat that? Or entiendes en español? A veces puede mejorar con menos entrenamiento. Es la verdad. Se dice Brett Kearns. I said, you get better on less training, man. It's no joke. Happens all the time. So, take James's story to heart. Uh, Toma mi español por tu corazón. Gracias para escuchar. All right. Oh, he's finishing. He's got more here. Sorry. Interestingly enough, I looked in okay shape due to my CrossFit style training and my body being naturally lean when I first started math. 
It's just that I had zero aerobic base and didn't know it at the time, but I was very sympathetic nervous system dominant. In other words, he was a fight or flight style athlete that could put out good performances, but didn't have that aerobic base, probably correlating, although I'm, he's not writing this, I'm just guessing he probably had more occasions of illness, injury, burnout, and probably was carb addicted, and hopefully he's got the diet part going, but I, I'm going to guess that he is because... Whew, dropping 52 beats and running the same pace, all kinds of amazing things are going on in the body, including better utilization of fat for energy, obviously. Okay, so moving on to uh, a few more thought-provoking questions and comments and success stories. Okay, generally I have a massive backlog of questions here because I like to go off and take one question and uh, cover uh, seven, 12 minutes of talking points and general principles that apply to everyone. Uh, it's really not appropriate for me to just answer someone's question directly like, hey, good luck in the next race. I'm trying to pull insights that everyone can appreciate. So uh, that's the backlog. But I try to answer the questions in the order that they're received. Sometimes people jump the line uh, with cool stuff that apply to the general audience. So um, Hollis is jumping the line. He's a 49-year-old male in Colorado. He has 10 Leadville 100-mile finishes, two at sub-25 hour, handful of other hundreds, lots of other ultras and marathons. Now he's going into distance cycling and still running and going for his 11th Leadville finish. He's been trying out keto for the last two and a half months. If I weren't doing all this endurance training, the transition would have been easier. Yes, we talk about that a lot on the Keto Show on the Primal Blueprint channel, that when you're making a major dietary transition, it's a really super great idea to tone down your overall energy expenditure in general, especially uh, extreme endurance training efforts, efforts. But he says, hey, nothing's easy. And with this keto experiment, he's gone from a buck 95 on April 3rd and on July something, early July, so that's three months later, he's 177. Wow, can you imagine how that might impact your performance running 100 miles in the mountains just from changing his diet? Because obviously he's been doing this stuff for a long time. He's got dozens of ultra endurance finishes lugging along 195 pounds. That's crazy talk, man. Yeah, it's got to feel great at a buck 77. It feels great to walk up the stairs to the third floor of work and get the, uh, the, the good looks from your coworkers when you drop 20 pounds. But how about busting out on the trail? With the lighter chassis and the same size engine, or in many cases, a bigger engine. Anyway, Hollis says, uh, I have about 35 questions, but I'll start with just one regarding math. Just as 220 minus age is too static for max heart rate, I don't get why math is so set in stone. At age 49, my max heart rate is 200, so all of my zones based on Garmin or Sunto gear are much higher than the average 49-year-old. Same with me, Hollis. My max heart rate is up over 190 at the age of 53, so the predictive formulas are, are not as relevant, and so when you uh, calculate training heart rate at things like 77% of max, like some people advocate to represent the aerobic limit. It's not as accurate as the more intuitive Maffetone calculation 
that, as Phil relates, comes from extensive practical experience with real athletes. And when he was pinned down to ask about the scientific validation for this 180 minus age formula, he said that he noticed a change in gait when people exceeded that calculation. So yes, you are allowed those adjustment factors like subtract 10 if you've been injured, ill, had surgery, or taking prescription drugs, subtract 5 if you've had struggles in recent times, uh, go to 0 if you're normal endurance athlete, or in rare occasions, add 5 if you've been extremely successful and injury-free with, with your endurance training in recent times. So those adjustment factors are there to account for, account for disparity, but big-time picture is... This may be uh, more conservative than the uh, ventilatory threshold school of thought where you can go look at 77% of your actual max heart rate as measured in a laboratory test, expensive test, and looking at your gas exchange ratios. But it has been found over 30 years time with real athletes that 180 minus your age is an excellent gauge to keep you safely in that aerobic zone and equate with the maximum fat oxidation per minute point in your exercise performance. So 180 minus age is supposed to be the point at which you're burning the highest amount of fat. And if you were to increase your heart rate, if you were to speed up, you would burn less fat and a greater and greater percentage of glucose, changing the stress impact of the workout, uh, compromising your fat adaptation goals, which are the foundation of building an aerobic base and giving you a much higher risk of overtraining. I know I'm hitting this point hard, talked about it many times on the show. I invite you to read the sidebar in the book Primal Endurance about how I buried myself with a five-month bout of what I thought was comfortably paced aerobic training where I was going off 75%, not even the more aggressive 77%, but 75% of my max heart rate, which was a heart rate of 142 beats per minute. So I set that as my aerobic limit and went right into an overtraining spiral, again, from comfortably paced aerobic endurance runs at 142 beats per minute or below. And for a little context, uh, I'd been off any form of serious uh, devoted endurance training for like 20 years, right? I was a, a dad raising little kids and coaching uh, soccer, basketball, and track with my main goals being dominating young boys uh, from third grade up to eighth grade in all three of those sports all year long, every season, bringing my A game and just throwing down with goals on the soccer practice, buckets at basketball practice, and clearing the high jump bar and out sprinting these guys at 100 meters during track practice. Oh, yes, I was what you call a participatory coach, inspiring these young lads to peak performance. And then when they got to ninth grade, 10th grade, they started mowing me down to the extent that I couldn't even stay on the practice court. And my son kindly invited me that I did not have to attend pickup games anymore on Sunday night. Uh, he said, I can get a ride from someone else. You don't have to go, Dad. And I'm like, oh, no, no. I greatly enjoy these engagements where we can play together uh, and do pickup with all your buddies. And he's like, nah, you don't have to come anymore. Maybe you should join the adult league. And so that was my uh, transition from literally MVP on the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade teams. If you were to give out an award to a guy who was, what, 30 years older than most of the players, 
from MVP to not even making the cut to be a bench warmer. Uh, that's what happens when kids grow five inches in two years, put on muscle, gain their skills. But thanks to me pushing the pace from uh, third grade when I was really enjoying my MVP status. Anyway, that put my endurance goals on the back burner until I got back into the exciting, wonderful sport of speed golf, which I talk about so much. But then I started to actually train and put in endurance runs and trying to up my mileage and go out there and do seven, eight, nine milers that I hadn't done for 20 years. So it was kind of an abrupt transition into uh, you know, more of this 20, 30 miles a week or something that was actually respectable rather than just occasional jogs and then going to soccer practice and keeping in shape. Um, so that was a little bit too much for me, especially at the heart rate of 142. I plunged into this overtraining spiral to the extent that I started feeling crappy after getting that initial, initial fitness response, of course. Uh, and part of this was going out to uh, play these speed golf practice sessions where I'm going to guess that quite frequently I was even above that 142 beep, 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 because that's my kind of morning training sessions where I'm actually measuring it and just jogging along with my dogs. But when I'm out there on the golf course, I'm not often wearing my heart rate monitor. So I was mixing this repeated bouts of 142 uh, with stuff that was probably going up into the 150s, maybe 160s at times. And again, 180 minus age at this time was a flat, fat 130 beats per minute. However, 142 was 75% of my max heart rate. After five months, uh, went in for a nice blood test as I routinely do with directlabs.com and came out with a testosterone level that was below the low normal range. So I was uh, effectively diagnosed as hypotestosterone, a candidate for hormone replacement therapy, perish the thought. I like to leave those thoughts as a last resort, but I was really washed up and washed out. Uh, subsequently, the following month, and I attribute this directly to my five-month pattern of over overtraining, I experienced a horrible medical setback where I had a burst appendix and emergency surgery where um, things were, uh, you know, not good. I had actually had the ruptured appendix and was laying at home in pain in bed for, I think, about 16 hours before I went back to the emergency room where I was sent back on the first, uh, first occasion. Uh, so moral of the story there, if your pain level is 10 out of 10, you stay in the hospital and ask them for further tests rather than go home and tough it out. So I had that tough it out mentality, that endurance athlete mentality that almost cost me my life. I uh, further uh, researched the idea that uh, when you have a burst organ, your lifespan is about 6 to 48 hours. So at the hour 16 mark, I finally got myself back into the hospital, immediately uh, removed the appendix, I think I had like seven or eight IV bags, so I was severely dehydrated also from the vomiting and the bad feelings. And this uh, medical incident came on the heels of a week where I had done uh, two magnificent uh, sprint and high jump workouts in 100 degree heat. So I had basically cooked my body with five months of overtraining, some ill-advised high intensity workouts for an old guy anyway in that heat, and there I am landed in the hospital reflecting on everything. So in the months that followed, in the aftermath from my June surgery to my next blood test in October, what is that, four months, um, I strictly limited my heart rate to 130 or below. 
not only because I was recovering from surgery, obviously I had a month of no exercise after the surgery because I had complications after, uh, if you're really concerned, and since I'm going off on this show, uh, it was called gross hematuria. I was peeing blood for 90 days straight without attribution, so I had to have three uh, kidney surgeries, bladder uh, examinations after my appendix out. So I was in and out of the hospital av- after having not set foot there since my son was born, what, yeah, 18 years before that. Oh my goodness, fun times. Anyway, that's what happens when you turn 50 sometimes, especially when you don't respect maximum aerobic heart rate. Anyway, so I'm coming back, I'm jogging, I'm staying under 130, I'm embracing the Maffetone approach, in the meantime, I had consulted with Dr. Maffetone about the distinction between his 180 minus age and the other stuff and choosing to be more conservative, seeing how much gosh darn sense it made that Phil's been doing this stuff for over 30 years and coaching the greatest athletes of all time in triathlon, Mike Pig, Mark Allen, Tim DeBoom. So I'm becoming a firm proponent. I'm enjoying my training. I'm noticing that after five months, my running pace has now reached the same speed that I was running at 142. When I was stressing my body mildly with that increased glucose burning workout and digging into that spiral of overtraining, just like the initial letter from James Hall that started the show, I was just as efficient as I was at the higher, more stressful heart rate. Go in for that blood test. Guess what? My testosterone has more than doubled. You can read the entire article on bradkearns.com, more than doubled to the extent that I'm in the 99th percentile for males over 50. And in fact, my numbers with the uh, serum testosterone up around 1,000 or over 1,000, hitting the 95th percentile for males in the peak testosterone years of 20 to 29. So I had transformed my physiology into that of a college dude rather than a sorry sack of shit at age 50 who could be a candidate to consider drug therapy. Oh my gosh, if that doesn't give you a wake-up call for the importance of the math calculation and the importance of going conservative here rather than trying to bargain for more beats, I don't know what else does, man. It's no fun sitting in a hospital bed with tubes sticking out of your stomach and wondering why you're peeing blood for three months. So that is my probably most emphatic endorsement to stick to math training, even if this requires just going on faith at first because you read an article about ventilatory threshold and how they identify a change in breathing respiration at the magic number of 75 or 77% of maximum heart rate, and you know your max heart rate is X, and who knows what their max heart rate is anyway. I mean, anytime you're doing that scientific approach, there's scientific error anyway. So who's to say that crazy Maffetone guy's calculation that he came up with one day in the shower, that's actually a true story. He just had this epiphany that 180 minus age might work because he'd been pouring over data from hundreds of athletes that he'd, that he'd observed on the track and noticing this change of gait occur and then applying it to their age, looking through their charts. Pretty funny stuff. But anyway, who's to say that's less valid than these big scientific labs where you're breathing into a mask and making these calculations that may or may not have any practical application to the human being and the dynamic uh, process of training? Be conservative. Remember, as I say over and over, in my peak time as a professional athlete, ages 20 to 30, 
I would conduct the vast majority of my workouts at significantly below that math level. So I wasn't even bumping up anywhere near that magic number of 155. I was content to do my bicycling and running at 107, 112, 122, 137, and getting in a great training effect, moving at a fast pace because I was well-conditioned and had built up over time, uh, just like our uh, listener Uh, doing this in the amateur ranks, you will get faster and faster. Trust me. Thank you so much, Hollis, for opening up this can of worms so I could tell you about my peeing blood for months at a time. Ha! Oh, and then the follow-up from Hollis says, I haven't seemed to dial in how to recover. You've said that the 30 to 45 minute window and taking in that four-to-one carbs-to-protein ratio, remember the window of opportunity, that's the old-school carbohydrate paradigm suggestion that you're burning all these carbs during workout, you immediately have to reload your glycogen when muscles are most receptive to nutrient reassimilation. And all that's true. If you're a carb-dependent athlete, you got to restock right away, the best way to recover. But as you become more and more fat-adapted, you have less need for carbs, whether you're doing endurance or even explosive efforts, as the amazing Luis Villasenor describes in our interview on YouTube that I conducted at Paleo FX, Google, I mean, uh, search YouTube for Brad Kern's Luis Villasenor strength training. Amazing stuff. So this recovery window and this obsessive refueling to top off your energy tanks is only relevant if you're consuming a high-carbohydrate diet. So Paula says... Um, You've said that stuff's old school thinking, carb dependency, but I can clearly tell that after a large effort, a few days later, I'm feeling much more soreness than when I was hitting the Endurox R4. That's a powdered product that uh, gives you the carbs and protein. Uh, And remember, Hollis is a guy that transitioned over to keto, dropped that 20 pounds. He's a 100-mile runner and was saying that was a little difficult Uh, transitioning over to keto while putting in the big miles. And so feeling like he recovers less quickly as he's transitioning over. And I'm going to validate these comments because it is difficult and it can take a while to get fully fat adapted and make things super easy and bounce back and recover quickly, even from extreme endurance efforts when you're keto. Uh, My recent discussion with the amazing longevity physician, Dr. Peter Atia on the Get Over Yourself podcast. He indicated that it took him uh, three months to get back to square one with his endurance performance after going keto. And he thinks that it took him a full year to get back to maximum explosive power for high intensity efforts after going keto. So anyway, Hollis says, I have the UCAN protein well, I thought UCAN was a carbohydrate support source, but a long-chain carbohydrate. So he says, I have UCAN I can take. But you've also said that a salad is essentially as good as anything. Bottom line, I'm not recovering like I used to, and I don't think it's age. So my answer to that, I kind of already gave it, is that you're trying to tackle a lot here with a major dietary transformation and proceeding uh, business as usual toward your 11th 100-mile Leadville performance. So um, you're talking about a big challenge, and I think you should give a little on either side if you're complaining about a slower recovery. So that would mean toning down your usual 
endurance regimen, your usual training uh, work output, or allowing a little more carbohydrate intake because of your endurance goals and because of your desire to recover faster, you'll probably still get the same or similar benefits of ketogenic eating, the anti-inflammatory, the reduced oxidative stress, uh, the peak cognitive benefits, and also the fat reduction benefits. Uh, You'll probably get the same even with a little bit higher carb intake because of your high-volume training. As Dr. Kate Shanahan says, when the glycogen suitcases are open, such as after strenuous workouts, uh, the carbohydrates you consume will go right into glycogen storage and not disturb insulin and even not disturb your ketogenic goals to a certain extent. Second comment or question from Hollis, should I keep my average heart rate below MAF or do I need to be below MAF the entire run ride? Absolutely, you have to be below MAF the entire run ride. I don't care what your average is if you're sprinting up a hill and coasting down uh, the other side of the hill, literally, that's not going to work for an aerobic training session. Once you transition into a glucose-burning state, even for a brief period of time, like sprinting to the city limit sign with your buddies during a five-hour aerobic training session, or picking it up on an uphill portion of the trail, uh, whether you intended to or not, you know, just uh, trying to keep the same pace as the trail gets more difficult or as you get more fatigued in the latter stages of a workout, trying to maintain the same pace per mile for some crazy reason while you're training. Absolutely no reason to worry about that. Of course, you want to gauge by heart rate rather than pace uh, during training session. Uh, But if you drift above that maximum aerobic heart rate, even for brief periods of time, it's very difficult to recalibrate back to a predominantly fat-burning state. Your body burns glucose quickly and easily, so once you get a little glucose burning going, your body will kind of tend toward that and get into the um, higher glucose burning, even if you lower heart rate. You won't just drift back into predominantly fat-burning states. You have to be very strict with monitoring your maximum aerobic heart rate during a workout and respect that for the entire duration of workout if you want to achieve the desired effect of the workout, which is enhance fat-burning capability, minimize the stress impact of the workout so that it be considered a truly aerobic training session. How's that? Yeah, I know. No um, no kidding around here. Strict. Okay, here's a funny uh, anecdote. Sorry, didn't get the name of the person. My husband has a co-worker who changed his lifestyle dramatically quite a few years ago. This gentleman used to sleep through meetings at work and was generally unhealthy. My husband has witnessed an amazing transformation in him and has been inspired to educate himself on what he's done. Recently, this co-worker lent my husband an autographed copy of Primal Endurance by Mark Sisson and Brad Kearns, published 2016. While washing windows in my house, I accidentally splashed vinegar water into the air and it landed on this beautiful book. I screamed. I couldn't believe what had just happened. Originally, I thought I would just buy a new book, but when I opened the cover, I was horrified to see that it was a signed edition. I am willing to pay to get a new book. This letter came through email, remind you. But is there any way I can get a signed copy? I know this book means a lot to my husband's co-worker. Like I said before, it has changed his life, so he loaned this precious asset out 
and oh, got doused with vinegar water. And just the kind of guys we are, Mark and I, we went ahead and arranged for a new signed copy by both authors to come to its destination. And I got the email back from this lady and she was overjoyed. She couldn't believe it. So good fun. Thank you so much for the nice email. Yeah, we love you, man. Keep it up. Spread the word. Buy another book. Yeah. Okay. Um, Let's do one more and then we'll wrap and uh, go into rapid fire Q&A for a future show so I can get through this wonderful stack. I mean, how can you go quickly through that? What a great story. Vinegar water spilled while washing windows on primal endurance. Maybe it was in a place of honor, like displayed in their uh, windowsill facing their front, front yard. I don't know. Okay. David Lapp, high volume contributor, weighs in with a little tidbit saying, well, we've talked about how cold is not advised after workouts because it can blunt the adaptive response to exercise. You want that inflammatory process to play out. But he says, what about sauna? And my reply is that um, I understand from watching, listening to Dr. Rhonda Patrick's shows that sauna after workouts could actually be good for recovery uh, for an assortment of reasons, including the development of these vaunted heat shock proteins that make your body more resilient to stress and enhance the cardiovascular training effect. Uh, I will mention myself that when I go into the sauna at the health club after an evening session of speed golf, so I'm kind of getting into the after dark hours now because I have to play speed golf right before dark, head over to the sauna, maybe I get out, it's uh, 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 7.30, 8.30, 9.30 at night, depending on the time of year, I find that my body temperature is still elevated as I'm heading into the bedtime hour, and I don't like that. No bueno. Difficult to fall asleep with elevated body temperature. So what I do on those occasions uh, to correct that, besides staying out of the sauna that late, uh, is to take a quick cold plunge and uh, get back to uh, normal body temp or below body temp. Maybe that's negating some of the um, benefits of the sauna where you have to get back to homeostasis naturally. But again, I'm just not a big advocate of sauna in the evening. So uh, try to find an appropriate time to get that uh, those health benefits going without uh, interfering with the gradual reduction in body temperature as you transition into sleep. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please check out primalendurance.fit and consider enrolling in the mastery course. Oh yes, I teased you at the start of the show that I had a discount for you. And the discount code that you put in at the checkout page at primalblueprint.com is BRAD20. So yeah, you can go to primalendurance.fit, the landing page, and it says, yes, enroll me in the course now. And as you're about to cough up the uh, reasonable enrollment fee for the amount of content you're getting, 20% off. That's awesome. Yeah, take it and run with it. Tell a friend, too, if you care about them and their endurance goals and their general health. B-R-A-D-20. That's what happens when you stay till the end of the show, including a little more J.J. Don't know the words, don't want to tell them clearly because we could get sued for trademark infringement and they get pretty saucy. Thank you for listening. Send me some info at primalendurance.fit. We'll cover your comments, questions, feedback. Till next time, Brad Kearns. Thanks for listening.
So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too it's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my gosh. So she likes like the mayo on a Oh yeah, she, so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have, uh, we, we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the, the ranch, um, the avocado oil we use all the time. And, and so, you know, that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park as they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> That's my pleasure.